Today we start a new series, at least when I'm up here, we're going to be looking a little bit at um, Ezra, the hand of our God was upon us. That's a common phrase that Ezra uses throughout this book, this historical document. The hand of our God was upon us. Ezra chapter 1, if you're following today in your notes, um, these should be on your chairs, the backside if you're online, these can be downloaded and you can track with us. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and um, point number one today is God fulfills his plans. That's what he does. He makes plans, and then he fulfills his plans every time. God fulfills his plans. Verse 1, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. There's a lot of information we have on King Cyrus. Um, We have some here in the Bible, but there's a lot of secular information, secular history concerning King Cyrus, his life, his battles, his empires, his influence, his legacy. Known as King Cyrus II, known as King Cyrus the Great. Um, The Greeks knew him as uh, King Cyrus the Elder, uh, founder of the Achaemenid Empire, lived from 600 B.C. to 530 B.C. says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. What prophecy? What prophecy? The 70-year prophecy. Jeremiah, if we look in Jeremiah's letter, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11, it says, therefore, and I'll just preface this, Jeremiah, along with many other prophets, had been warning uh, the nations of Israel and Judah, um, they, had, they had forsaken God, they had forsaken God's ways, they had forsaken the Ten Commandments that he'd given them. Um, they weren't celebrating the festivals that they were supposed to do in remembrance of the things that God had done for them. They were worshiping pagan idols, they were sacrificing their own children um, on altars, they were copying the pagan lifestyles. And they kept warning them and telling them, come back to God, come back to God. But just as Moses had prophesied years before that, thousand years before that, they were wayward and, and they, they, their hearts wandered away from the truth and away from God. And so here's Jeremiah speaking here and he says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall, shall, (laughs) that's a tongue twister, these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's the 70-year prophecy right there. Written between 606 B.C. and 604 B.C. is when Jeremiah wrote that. And sure enough, it was shortly thereafter that Babylon came against Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar himself, and sacked, besieged the city. And that that was the first of three different... um, 
captivities that happened there with Jerusalem. That was the first one. They took all the nobles, all the young men, all the, the men that had um, a background of intelligence or education. They took all those as captives to Jerusalem at that time. And they set up a puppet king for a little while. And Jeremiah was still in um, Jerusalem at that time. And, some of the, and here's some of the pictures of um, Jerusalem being sacked. I don't know if they already did that. You guys funnel through those. So, well, there's King Cyrus, sure. Let's go forward, forward. There we go. So Jerusalem being, being taken. And the next picture, this is a famous painting of Jerusalem and all the captives being led out to Babylon, which was a long way away. That, that map right there shows <clears throat> Assyria is the red Empire And Assyria is the one that took out Israel, if you know any history, took out the ten tribes of Israel, took them into captivity, dispersed them all over the place. Babylon ousted Syria, Assyria. Babylon's in power now, and Nebuchadnezzar comes down to Jerusalem and takes all the captives all the way back. The roads went way up and then back down over to Babylon. From Jerusalem to Babylon. And so some of the captives there of one one of which was Daniel. Daniel, if you know any Jewish history, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were some of the the learned um, men of that day that were very young teenagers, taken as captives to Babylon. And and while there are a lot of the people that have been taken captive, they're writing letters back and forth to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, this thing's going to blow over soon. Maybe a month or two, we'll get to come back. This will be this will this is going to work out. We're gonna we're gonna come back. And certainly this is gonna this is gonna we'll reclaim our we'll rebuild and and um, and Jeremiah hears of the letter and he writes a letter. He writes a letter. Jeremiah twenty five eight through eleven. Um, no, I'm sorry. Jeremiah twenty nine ten through fourteen. For thus says the Lord: After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you. So he's saying. He told them, guys, <clears throat> prior, prior to what I just read there, he says, build houses and plant vineyards in Babylon. Raise your kids, invest, invest right there where you're at, because right here he says, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. <clears throat> Here's a very popular verse, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And then you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I'll be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I'll bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. That was written between 597 and 590 B.C. It says, then, after 70 years of captivity, you will call on me. What does it take for a nation to call upon God? What does it take for us personally and individually to call upon the name of the Lord and not just give lip service Oh, God, help me today. What does it take for people to call upon, to rely on, to depend on, to surrender to 
to give themselves over to the Lord, to seek him with their whole heart, not a part of their heart and in their spare time. It says, you'll seek me, you'll find me when you search me with all your heart. What does it take? Well, the captives are in Babylon, and, and, and so there's two more sieges on Jerusalem because the puppet king um, defects, deflects, and, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar sends armies again. They take him. Zedekiah becomes king of, of Judah. He defects. Um, they take him out. Um, and all of Jerusalem ends up being burned. The temple gets burned to the ground. And that's, that's uh, 587, thereabouts, B.C., when that happens. Fast forward, um, the Jews that are in Babylon, Daniel recognizes. Daniel's still alive. He's an old man, probably in his upper 80s, maybe 90s. And in Daniel 9, we read this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, made king by, um, by Cyrus. It's a co-reigning thing going on. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem written around 538 B.C. He remembers that. He he remembers, and then he prays a prayer. And we're going to read that prayer right now. It comes right after this. It's Daniel 9, chapter 9, 8 through 10. I'm going to skip a few verses, but we'll get most of the prayer here. It says, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, and yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear, and open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear, and O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. It's a really good prayer that Daniel prayed. What is our prayer? What is your prayer? For our nation, but even personally. For we do not present our supplications, that means our requests, we do not present our requests before you because of our righteous deeds because we're so great or good or pure or holy, but because of your great mercies. That's why we approach you. And that's why we can approach God is because of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, paid the price for our sins on the cross. And we can come boldly to God 
Not because we're good and innocent, no, but because Jesus paid our price. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament here, Daniel recognized that. That was the case. That's why we approach God. That's why we can have confidence. Because his loving kindness, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. How does God go about fulfilling his plans? So he, he speaks through Jeremiah, says 70 years they're going to be in captivity, and then they're going to come out. How, what was, how was God going to do this? Right? It was a, with Jewish captives, they're going to plan a secret escape. Right? No, or, or the ground is going to swallow up the Babylonian armies. That would be cool. I think God did that at another time. It was Jewish captives are miraculously transported back to Jerusalem while they're sleeping one night. I mean, God could do all those things, right? I mean, that's, but God actually told us 300 years prior how he was going to bring the Jewish captives back to Jerusalem. He'd stated this way back. When they're not listening to the prophets, he was speaking through the prophets. And he was saying, you you guys are going to keep going down the wrong road. It's It's going to lead to natural consequences. Harmful ones. But, but here's how you're going to go into captivity, but here's how you're going to come out. And he, and he says it through Isaiah. Isaiah foretells Cyrus by name. Because this is powerful. This is Jewish scripture 300 years prior to this incident. Isaiah 44, 28. Before I read that, Isaiah was also talking about the impending destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel, for that matter, at that time. He he was speaking of that. But then he turns the corner in in chapter 44, and and he starts talking about them being delivered or coming back. And he says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Continued. Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, the next chapter, verses 1, verses 4 through 6 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 11 and 13. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. His maker being Cyrus's maker is what he's talking about there. The Holy One of Israel and Cyrus's maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have raised him up, Cyrus, up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and my exile shall go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. There was no money in this for Cyrus, and no one was paying him off or bribing him. He wasn't getting a reward out of this. That's written in 697 BC by Isaiah. Friends, God fulfills his plans. Yes, he does. (laughs) 
We might get worried from time to time when we see of news headlines or we experience upheaval in our communities, but God does not. He knows the end from the beginning. The evil actions of people do not thwart his plans, for he knows how to bring good out of evil, and he knows how to judge the wicked. In fact, he's appointed a day to do just that. God knew that the nation of Israel and Judah would rebel, and he accounted for that, and he had his prophets tell us ahead of time what would come of it. God knew. God has a plan, and everything is going according to plan. Everything's going according to plan, which brings us to number two. God stirs his people. Second part of verse 1, Ezra 1, 1, says, He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. In that verse right there, it says that God stirred Cyrus's heart for something specific, to put a proclamation in writing. We'll look at what that proclamation entails um, as we proceed, but isn't it interesting, isn't it an important concept that God stirs someone's heart for something specific? Yeah. And that's not the only time that that phrase is used in the Bible. In fact, we'll read it again in just a few verses of him stirring some other people's hearts. Um, here are some examples of God stirring people's hearts in Exodus. Um, all whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved came and brought their, their sacred offering to the Lord, Exodus 35, 26. All the women whose hearts were stirred with wisdom, spun yarn of goat's hair, there, they were creating a, the first temple um, at that point in time. Exodus 36, 2, Moses called Basilel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. God stirs up people's hearts for specific things. And for anything of significance to happen in our lives, in our communities, in our nation, we need God to stir our hearts. Stir a passion in my heart. Let it overflow. Let it overflow. Stir a passion in my heart, God. Let it overflow. Let it overflow. Jesus, put your passion in my heart. Jesus, ignite me with your spirit passion and your spirit desires. Give me your heart, Lord. Otherwise, we can find ourselves going through motions and being dutiful, maybe trying to do good things and live for God, but that can lead to burnout. We need God to stir our hearts today. We need him to blow afresh upon us. We need the breath of the living God inside of us. Stir a passion in our heart, Lord, for you, for the things of you, and even specific things that you might want to accomplish in and through me, in and through us. If God were to stir your spirit this morning, how would you respond? Would you respond? Would we Take notice. How seriously would we take the stirring or would we downplay it or ignore it? 
Are we open to the stirrings of God? Would we shirk it off? Would we look for a distraction? Maybe we don't want to hear from God. Maybe we're comfortable and we don't want to be convicted or challenged. We don't want God to stir our hearts because we're comfortable and we already have our calendar planned. We already know what we like to do and where we like to go and what we like to eat and how we want to live. We don't want God to stir our heart because then we can't be God of our own life. We have to follow another God, the real God. So many people and throughout Scripture harden their heart. They harden their heart instead of humbling their heart. I took Spanish in high school for two years, and I I started kind of understanding a bit of it and being able to speak a little bit. Went on a missions trip to Mexico, used it a little bit. But after a while, I kind of stopped speaking it, stopped listening to it. Now when I hear someone speaking Spanish, I'm deaf to it. We don't want to become deaf to God. We don't want to just know how we're going to do things. And we're old enough now, we have a routine in place long enough, we know how life works and that's how we're going to live. We're not going to listen for God's voice anymore because we know all the principles. We know how to live as a Christian. That's convicting to me. Maybe it's convicting to you this morning. That is convicting to me. For me to hear God's voice and act upon it. Well, I'm doing a lot of things for God, right? I'm doing a lot of things. I'm helping with the church. I'm helping with the school. I'm raising kids to know God. I am living for God all day, every day. But I could miss hearing God's voice. I just have Christianity memorized, right? Lord, let that not be for me, Lord. I'm not in a hurry when it comes to your spirit, when it comes to your presence, when it comes to your voice. I'm learning to listen, just to rest in your nearness. I'm starting to notice you are speaking. There was a challenge in Minneapolis when I was going to school in Minneapolis. For a time, we went to uh, just a couple couple people I knew went to this church that was a ways away from our school, but we went to this church that I'd heard of. I think they called it the upper room or they called it something. And there was a lot of college-age students there. And the pastor kept challenging people to say, what did God speak to you today to do? What did he tell you today to do? And every week for a month or two months, that was the idea. And we wanted to hear God's stories every day. What did he tell you to do today? And did you do it? Did you act upon that thing today? Spirit and in truth. God has truth for us. Truth for us doctrine for us, but he also has spirit for us, and the two work together for his glory. Number three, God gets his praise. 
Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 says, This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's very different from how King Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor by a couple, um, uh, a couple people there, King of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, they were both kings over vast empires, but one acknowledged God while the other acknowledged himself. Look at Daniel 4.30. Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. You are awesome, Nebuchadnezzar. You are awesome. If you know the rest of the story, he was humbled big time. He had been warned ahead of time about this pride that he had. He was told to humble himself, to turn from his sins, to show mercy to people instead of just oppressing them. And he didn't, and he took credit for all of his vast empire, and he was humbled, lost his mind for seven years, ate grass like an ox. His fingernails, toenails grew. He lost his mind. There was, a, there was someone reigning in his place for seven years. At the end of seven years, this isn't where we're going today. His senses return to him. He gives glory to God. He recognizes everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything I have, everything I have. God gave me maybe some intelligence or some opportunities. You know, I have the ability to work hard. You know, but that all comes from God. The breath inside my lungs yeah. is not my. I didn't create my lungs. God did. And so, do we need to be humbled this morning? Do we need to be humbled, or can we be like Cyrus? I, I prefer to go that route. And just right off the bat, God, you, it's all yours. Everything I have is from you. And so we get a peek right here. This, this, is, this is a look into King Cyrus, his heart. Um, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Powerful dude, but he knew. And he, he, he acknowledged, wow, do we need to be humbled like Nebuchadnezzar? Can we learn the easy way? Uh, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We can humble ourselves, or we can be humbled. We have a couple options there. <laughs> Number four, God provides his project. So God has a plan. He's going to fulfill it. God stirs Cyrus's heart. Cyrus is a humble king. He's acknowledging God. He's in position for God to use him to stir his heart. God provides his project. He gives Cyrus something specific to do. Ezra 1, 2, verse 2 continued, He has appointed, God has appointed me, Cyrus, to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. God stirred Cyrus's heart to free the Jewish captives and make it legal for them to return and to rebuild their temple. That's pretty specific. That's a specific calling that God had for Cyrus, and Cyrus was listening. Does God have a specific calling for me? 
Does he have a specific project for me to work on? Something to give my life toward? Does he have a calling on your life? You bet he does. He didn't make you for nothing. Hey, whoops, what did I make that person for? <laughs> that was a waste of time. He has a calling on you. Noble, nobility, written all over you. Created on purpose and with purpose for the glory of God. To allow him to fill you. For as you grow in the grace and knowledge of God, and you grow in your intimacy with God, then he provides specifics for you. And until you find what those specifics are, you're faithful in the little things. I know I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife. I'm supposed to be a parent to my kids to help them know the Lord. I'm not supposed to cheat or lie or whatever. And so we're looking at obeying and being faithful in the little things to the Lord, to hearing him and obeying him. A lot of times we find out after 40 years and we look back and say, oh, This is what God, we see in the rearview mirror. We've just been doing little things the whole time, but now we see the project that God had all along, that he's fulfilled in and through us by us just being obedient in the little things. Hearing God's voice in the little things. Jeremiah's calling, that prophet we talked about, his calling, his project was to speak truth to his people, even when they didn't want to hear it. That was his project. That was his calling. He was supposed to speak God's truths to the people and warn them of judgment and to prophesy about the future. It wasn't a fun thing to continually warn people of judgment. People don't usually enjoy hearing that. But when you embrace the calling of God on your life, nothing can stop you. Jeremiah was mocked, he was persecuted, but he could not be stopped. Jeremiah 29, he writes that about himself. He like, he's like, I'd like to just kind of stop doing this. I'm getting a lot of ridicule and persecution. I don't really appreciate that. He writes, but if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak his name, his words burn in my heart like a fire. It's like fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. He couldn't not live for God. It's more difficult to ignore and resist the calling than to accept it and complete it. His calling became part of who he was. The tension was probably very real for Jeremiah, but he could not walk in intimacy with God and neglect his calling at the same time. They were connected Sometimes God will provide different projects for different seasons in your life. I like, when I think about David in the Bible, and I think, you know, God's first project for him, well, that we're aware of, there might have been before that, it was a shepherd. He was supposed to watch sheep. That's what David's project was. God had that for him. And he did that faithfully, and he'd rescue his sheep from bears or lions if they came to attack. He's a good shepherd. And then he was, God's project for him, almost simultaneous, I guess at the same time, was also to be writing music, and he's writing worship songs to God as he's a shepherd, and he's learning how to play the harp as he's out there in the fields. He's got a little harp he's playing, and he's making songs. 
And later on, God has a project for him to slay a giant, Goliath. And God has a project for him to become a soldier, to lead an army. Later on, there's a project to become king of the whole empire of Israel, of Judah, and then Judah and Israel. God had all kinds of projects and callings for David. Sometimes there's an overarching project that we can really see and nail down. But within that, there's a billion little projects along the way that God has for us. How is God stirring your heart this morning? It's a scary but exciting question. What calling or project does God have for me? God will make us aware of a need that we are to help with. God will make us aware. Noah, you build a boat. You save your family and the animals. Abraham, you leave your culture. You go to a foreign land. Joseph, you forgive your brothers who sold you into slavery. Moses, you deliver the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Ruth, you go with Naomi and become an Israelite. Nehemiah, you go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Esther, you put your life on the line to save your people from a massacre. Philip, you go meet with the Ethiopian eunuch. Paul, you take the gospel to the Gentiles. John, you write the book of Revelation. God provides his project. And there is a list of ordinary, flawed, messed up, scared, and insecure people in the Bible who said yes to God, not knowing what it would mean for their lives. And so number five, Cyrus plays his part. Ezra chapter 1, verse 3, any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem. So this is that proclamation that he put in writing. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold and supplies for the journey and livestock as well as voluntary offering, a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So Cyrus plays his part. He does what he can do for that temple to be rebuilt. He makes it legal for Jewish captives to return. He puts it in writing. He commands that their neighbors help pay the expenses and give toward the temple of God. Later on, we're not going to get this far today, in verse 7, he returns all the gold and silver articles of the temple, which had been confiscated when Jerusalem had initially been conquered. Returns all those. God stirs his heart, and he does what's within his power to do. He didn't sit on his hands and say, wow, isn't that an interesting idea God gave me? but he took faith steps to accomplish the task. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a lot of times we're, we get, we're kind of wowed with some ideas that we have, wow, what if God used me to do this? Or wow, what if God has, has it for me to intervene in this, in, in, in this circumstance or this issue? Or, or what if God wants me to take a step of faith here? Wow, that's, that's kind of neat. That's kind of something. But nothing comes of it. Nothing comes of it. Cyrus plays his part, and we have evidence of it. Um, th this is pretty, I mean, we have evidence in the Bible, which is, is primary. But even secular evidence shows this. This is, this is one of the coolest discoveries of all time from ancient uh, Babylonia. 
Uh, in the Persian Empire also is the Cyrus Cylinder. Cyrus Cylinder is one of the most famous surviving icons from the ancient world, excavated at Babylon in 1879. The, Cyrus, the cylinder inscribed in Babylonian cuneiform on the orders of the Persian king Cyrus the Great after he captured Babylon in 539 BC. It marks the establishment of Persian rule. It records how Cyrus restored shrines and allowed deported peoples to return home. Isn't that cool? That was a big deal. That was found in Babylon, underneath the ruins of a temple there. When God puts something on your heart, say yes. It may be difficult. It may be unpopular. It may be uncomfortable. But say, yes, Lord. I say, yes, Lord. So rewarding and so life-changing. When we say yes to God, then we get to see God work. God provides for, he protects, he fulfills his promises. He does what only he can do. What he desires to do through us when we say yes. When God puts something on your heart or mind or a part to play, do it with God's help and for the glory of his kingdom. Jeremiah prophesied. Daniel prayed. And he lived honorably, and he was an advisor to the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede. Cyrus wrote an edict. God has called you. What has God called you to do? Is there something specific that you're to give your life towards? And we could, we could you know, go down a big list. You know, maybe he's called you to be this or that or a pastor or a missionary or to help people with addictions or a teacher, and we could go down a list of 3,000 things. Could be almost any occupation, but more than an occupation, a life calling. Life calling, which leads to number six. Others play their part. So here goes God again, verse five. Then God stirs the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. And they gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. So here's God stirring hearts again. Stirring other people's hearts for other things. Other parts of the plan. It was not God's plan that Cyrus would go and build the temple himself. It wasn't his plan that Daniel would go at 90 years old or however old he is and start building the temple. It wasn't for Jeremiah to do. No, he was prophesying beforehand. But it was for the leaders of Judah and Benjamin to do. God had a plan for them and they did it. Doesn't that take a load off you? That you don't have to fulfill everything, everywhere? Be everything to everybody? The all in all? We just do the little bit that God gives us to do, and we do that as well as we can with his help. And the New Testament is full of that concept. We're known as the body of Christ. We're each a member of the body of Christ. We're like a body part. Some of us are fingers, some of us are fists, some of us are knees, but, but we're all working together for the body of Christ. That's right. Doing things, <clears throat> playing a part, working together for God's glory. In our church, in our school, 
in our communities, in our workplaces, with our families. And today, many of us get to march in a parade. So where do you land today? And what might God's spirit be stirring in you? God's plans will be fulfilled with or without you and I. But oh, the joy of being found in him. Oh, the experience of having the God of the universe stir your heart. Oh, the exhilaration of saying yes to God. Saying yes to God. Oh, the experience of having God set a project before you, embracing that project, to have a part to play and to live with others for the glory of God. Lord, we thank you today for the restoration that you had planned for the people of Judah. For the heart that you had for them all along, even while they're living in their sin, Lord, you had a heart for them. You desired good for them, not evil. Your way is the good way. Your way is right. Even when we ignore it, even when we compromise on it, even when we think we know best, even we think when we think that the world's ways might be more exciting. Thank you, God, and forgive us, Lord, and forgive me, Lord, for <clears throat> plugging my ears to your Holy Spirit, for failing to listen, Lord, as I should. Lord, we want to be spirit-led, Lord not just led by our own flesh and our own intellect, Lord, and our own desires, Lord. We want to submit to your desires and your thoughts and plans. And we know you uh, will take care of us, Lord. You know best. You will use us for your glory. And you will reward those, Lord, who live for you in such a manner, Lord. Pray for our church, Lord. I thank you for all the things that you're accomplishing, God. And I pray in light of all those things, we would not lose our focus, Lord, on who you are and that that special connection, Lord, that you want to have with each of us. Oh, God. Thank you for loving us as a whole, but also loving us individually, Lord, caring about us so much. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, dying for our sins. Lord, even over the next five minutes as we worship, Lord, I ask you to speak to us. And on behalf of the church, Lord, I, I tell you, Lord, that we, want to hear and want to be stirred and want to say yes.
In Jesus' name, amen.